This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. Joining me this week is our Africa and LNG editor, Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman, who is back from some travels. Can we see where you've been and what you've been up to, Hamish? Yeah, I've been in Dublin. I was in Dublin at the weekend, catching up with an old junior mate. Um, a few of us went over. Lovely. Uh, what did we get up to? We did a bit of culture and then we hit the pub for the rest of it. Classic. The pub is culture. I mean, people forget this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that sounds like fun times. And well, back, back to Earth of the Bump on the Energy Voice podcast. Um, but we'll and we'll kick off, I think, with that with Hamish. Where, well, there's been some concerning HSE developments on a, a Total Energies platform. Hamish, fill us in with that. Yeah, very concerning. Um, I mean, to put this in context, I suppose we we get our updates from the Health and Safety Executive every Wednesday. Usually there's kind of a list of a, a few and there's an off chance there might be a, a, an offshore incident within them. But usually they're no more than, than slaps on the wrist and just companies being told to improve. There have been some pretty serious ones over the, over the years, but this one was... I mean, as serious as they come. So this was opposed to an improvement notice, which is what usually goes out. This was a prohibition notice, which is the highest form of health and safety sanction and is a warning to stop work immediately where there is an imminent threat of injury or death. Sounds ominous. So this specifically related to Total Energy's Alwyn North assets and was actually served to Oceaneering um, rather than Total itself. So I'll read the notice. Usually they can be quite long, quite in detail, kind of giving a good overview of what happened. This one was relatively short uh, in the grander scheme of things. So the company was found to have failed to, so far as is reasonably, reasonably practical, achieve the restriction of exposure to ionizing radiation by means of engineering controls, design features, and by the provision and use of safety features and warning devices. Now, ionizing radiation is about as bad as it sounds, to be honest, because according to the World Health Organization, and this didn't take much digging to find, contact with even low doses of ionizing radiation can increase the risk of longer term effects such as cancer. So not something that you want to be exposed to even in very, very small doses. So as I mentioned this year, this was on the Alwyn North facility. It's comprised of two bridge link platforms, North Alwyn Alpha, North Alwyn Bravo, about hundreds miles to the east of the Shetland Isles and very close to the UK Norwegian um, median line. Now, just going on the pictures that we have of it, and you can see them on the article, it certainly looks like it's uh, one of the older assets currently in the North Sea. No spring chicken. I did have a look. I think it's been been producing since the early '80s, so it's um, it's showing signs of wear and tear from the exterior, anyway. So because there wasn't a great detail of this, we were kind of holding out for comments from Oceaneering and Total to to shed a bit more light on what actually happened. So from Total, they said they were made aware of the notice, the situation was rectified, and radiography inspection works resumed. So I, going by that, I assume that these harmful rays were emitted during kind of inspections perhaps it sounds like maybe a, a souped up x-ray was being used to to get a picture or a, of the assets and and during during hse work in general so oceaneering did confirm that at no time was there exposure to the radiation and that that work resumed pretty quickly off the back of it um kind of be that as it may it's still damning and, and worrying that it was allowed to even to even get that far as a possibility so that's an issue in itself and this is certainly one of the first 
prohibition notices I remember covering in what went nearly three years here now. So these are very rare and they're only used in the most serious of circumstances. So that in itself is a good gauge of of quite how bad this could have been. Doesn't appear to have been, but um, still a pretty pretty stark warning of of what watch out what you're doing with your ionizing radiation indeed yeah yeah i can't i can't think of any uh prohibition notices uh, either to be honest i'm sure i'm sure it has happened uh, maybe once or twice perhaps um in recent memory but it is it is quite a rare thing to see this go out and i guess yeah i mean it kind of goes i feel like we're talking about this every week now but it kind of if you stretch back more widely there does seem to be this this pattern of hse issues that are propping up now um you know uh, cropping up the the floor grating on the Valaris one two one the the chopper blades coming off during Storm Auto the ionized radiation the asbestos risk we've had we've had in Norway uh, somebody unfortunately losing their arm in a crushing incident in the last year you know it's kind of I mean, people have been hurt clearly but it's amazing that more people aren't being hurt uh, given the amount of incidents that we're now seeing and I, I don't know if HSE are just ramping up their inspections or not but um, you just have to think to what extent is the eye coming off the ball here for the industry that is it's so it's so um, concerned with its social license to operate or it has been but you just wonder you know it just takes one disaster for something to 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 really make people reassess right so where are we with that is there is there i mean i suppose is there some sort of link maybe to uh reduce spending from companies during uh during downturns i mean obviously when uh when when when, when oil prices fell when the energy industry was kind of worried about its future obviously there was a lot of uh a lot of lot of, lot of cuts a lot of reductions and obviously i suppose we're sort of seeing some of that still kind of through in things like strikes and stuff right and 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 that kind of continued pressure on people is 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 it is it a leap to 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 kind of ask whether this reduced spending on service on maintenance whatever things like that may have an impact on on safety i think that's certainly all true and i think it would be all all of those kind of points feed into it. i think a large part is also just a hangover from from covid and and the reduced mounting levels offshore then when a lot of all but essential maintenance work was kicked to the back of the queue because there were just skeleton crews offshore and on that point of being there's such a great focus on the social license to operate at the moment it's it's almost a possible a worst possible time as well for the for the for the eye to come off health and safety because the eye of the public and certain groups is so keenly focused on industry that all it would take is one serious accident, injury, heaven forbid anything worse, um, for the industry's social license to operate to, to be massively diminished and for people to to call for an end to, to North Sea oil and gas production if there's a, another... I mean, if you, you fear another kind of Piper Alpha situation where you you have to think that might be curtains for the industry if that happened now. And, and you think you think when you say, when you evoke things like Piper Alpha, people might accuse that of being sensationalist. But I mean, just last month, almost to the day, we had the HSE OE UK conference where the health and safety executive was speaking and they said offshore maintenance backlog creates potential for a major accident. That was a month ago they said this. And obviously, this is the 35th anniversary of Piper Alpha this year, and we are seeing this uh, this pattern of of HSE issues, some pretty serious, and we're not even talking about uh, hydrocarbon spills here, which have also been happening, um, you know, coming up again and again. So it does feel like somebody's taken their eye off the ball, and unless uh, something gets addressed in a more uh, substantial manner you do you do worry about that and i don't think it's i don't think it's over the top to evoke things like that and suggest there would be a there could be a major accident because 
you know, it's a high hazard industry, right? So, so there we are. Uh, okay, well, look, uh, Hamish, thank you for uh, that analysis uh, and rundown. Next up, we'll be looking ahead to developments with BP in the west of Shetland. UK export finance can help your business grow overseas. Last year, we helped UK exporters access £7.4 billion of support by providing government-backed finance and insurance. We can help you win export contracts with attractive finance terms. Got orders overseas? Fulfil them with a working capital loan. Exporting to a challenging market? Make sure you get paid with the right insurance. To get the exporter's edge, search UK Export Finance or call us on 0800 538 5111. Okay, so for our monthly supplement, which was themed on frontiers uh, this month, we sat down with Doris Reiter, who is the North Sea boss of BP, uh, the first woman, as it happens, to be in charge of that portfolio as well. Um, But as I say, the main theme was on frontiers and BP having the portfolio it has, the west of Shetland was kind of the main topic of conversation and the the main item to come out of that is that BP is now once again eyeing the third phase of its Clarefield in that region. For those that don't know, Clare has in place 7 billion barrels of oil equivalent. It is the largest hydrocarbon accumulation in Western Europe. It is a giant by not just UK standards, but uh, it's a large field by international standards as well. Uh, and the, the first phase of Clare came online in 2005. Clare Ridge, which is phase two, came on in 2018. That was after, I think, uh, I think it was a four or five billion pound investment. And the third phase is, well, it is previously called Clear South, or as it's now being described, just Clear Phase 3. I think there is significance to that name change, but we can maybe come on to that. And BP has not taken a final investment decision yet. Um, It's clear that they are now slowly heading that direction. And that's significant because, particularly amid COVID and COP26, it looked like There was this kind of big period of deferral. At one point, they'd hoped that Clear South would get FID in 2021. They held off because they wanted to ensure it aligned with their climate targets. That deferral announcement, I think, came five or six months before the COP26 conference. And now BP has said uh, has a new and revised strategy, uh, including resilient hydrocarbons, as they call them, and energy transition. Bernard Looney recently said that that's investing in the energy transition and not or today's energy system, which for obviously is predominantly a fossil fuels one. So the UK is kind of one of the core areas for that strategy. And as such, uh, clear phase three, back in view, FID hoped for next year with potential for either an all-subsea development or a bridge-linked platform which would be installed and uh, linked up to the existing Clear Ridge asset. Now, this comes, I mentioned the, the climate target stuff, this comes as BP has recently signed this pact with Ithaca, which operates the Cambo Field, and Equinor, which operates uh, Rosebank, to work on west of Shetland electrification. Achieving that will obviously form uh, part of considerations on an FID for Clare uh, Phase 3, uh, as Doris Reiter told me. But nonetheless, yeah, tensions here uh, with further developments. You know, approval would come after our the United Nations warning last month that said that rich countries, uh, obviously the UK would be included within that, should quit coal, oil and gas by 2040. Um, so you could probably expect some protests along those lines to this. And But on the flip side, we have had the UK industry regulator in 2021 saying uh, that the current reserves in Britain could only 
sustain until 2030 without new fields coming online. And that comes, uh, again, last month research showing that we in the UK imported £100 billion of energy imports in 2022. So BP says uh, its strategy is seeking to address kind of the supply crisis and the energy transition. They're investing in both um, in terms of, you know, transition growth engines and hydrocarbons. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is pro- this is the start um, of, of uh, I think, a long road towards what could be FID on this project. Um, questions will no doubt come up when the environmental statement is out, for example. Um, and this is just the first news, if you like, on Clear 3, as it's called now. But we'll we'll be keeping an eye and see where that goes. I think it's a damn shame that they're calling it Clear 3 rather than Clear South. I think Clear South is a much better name. <laughs> Do you? Um, well, uh, that's interesting. I, I guess I guess the um, my take on it, and we, I, they didn't they didn't say this to me, um, but my take on why they, I think they've changed the name is because they're quite keen not to imply that it's a brand new field, but the third phase of an existing field, um, whether or not that has it carries any water whatsoever, and that's just my theory. Um, remains to be seen. That might not be the case. But yeah, I mean, we don't know what they're looking to extract yet from it um, in comparative terms. As I said, we know what kind of the oil in place for overall Clearfield. So it's going to be a sizable development. We'll probably get more on that when the environmental statement is out. Um, but yeah, there is going to be some hurdles and a name change. If that is if that is part of the thinking around that, then I, I, I don't know whether that will actually make much difference uh, in terms of people's uh, mindsets towards it. Speaking on that kind of West to Shetland frontier, though, I mean, this this project getting FID and, and moving towards that phase could be kind of huge for the region more widely. It's obviously proved a pretty tough nut to crack for a lot of operators in there, a lot of projects that kind of stall then to seem to take a couple of steps forwards then seem to stop again just kind of you you almost think that maybe it just takes one domino to to fall for for the rest to follow there and for for the likes of your your rosebanks and your cambos and glendronic as well to 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 start to get a bit of movement there's a massive amount of potential in that region. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Hamish. I think what's going to, I mean, assuming timelines remain as they are, obviously there's been a few question marks over uh, Cambo recently. Ithaca, uh, you, well, you spoke to the chairman uh, there a week, Hamish. Uh, Ithaca having, well, question marks over the windfall tax. And if that doesn't get amended, then perhaps FID doesn't happen or gets delayed. Rosebank, though, we know um, Equinor are keen to get that FID'd this year um, before what Arne Gertner, the, the UK manager, was saying they want to be talking about that around offshore Europe time, which is in September. Um, so I think I think the first domino will probably be, I would expect that to be Rosebank. Um, now, there's some question, I mean, there seems to be some optimism that uh, there will, in fact, be a price floor implemented in t- in, into the windfall tax, and that would allow Cambo to go ahead. It depends on who you talk to, to be honest. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, I think once that first domino, as you put it, uh, falls, um, then yeah, that might open up more. Um, I don't think Clear South will be the first domino to fall on that. Um, and and for the record, we've we've seen um, the furor around Cambo and Rosebank. Um, I mean, Clear South is a that's a BP and Shell partnered project. So if there was ever one that's going to be a bit of a lightning rod, um, I expect that might be it. But I mean, look, um, 
what 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 BP and that are going to say to that is, you know, they trust in the robust licensing processes of the North Sea Transition Authority. Um, they're working towards electrification. We haven't taken a FID yet, so there might be a, a degree of saying that's preemptive in terms of calling out climate stuff. Um, there's obviously a, a, a massive section of people. Or a section of people, maybe massive's not quite right, but a section of people who will look at this and see uh, a kind of climate-destroying project. And uh, yeah, as as this rolls forward, um, it's going to be up to to them and to uh, the regulator if they decide to approve it to to showcase why why the UK should be going ahead with this. I mean, that that, that does need a bit of sort of a safety in kind of going as a herd, though, doesn't it? I mean, I think you know if you kind of uh, if 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 Rosebank, Claire, three you know, Cambo, whatever, all sort of move together, then uh, maybe that sort of avoids some of the criticism that came with uh, Cambo trying to trying to move ahead on its own and becoming the sort of the unacceptable face of uh, wicked uh, hydrocarbon capitalism. Definitely shares the load a bit, doesn't it? Either that or it just becomes this big Frankenstein beast that uh, people can kind of... Yeah. Can, can bash <laughs> with a stick. That's a better name, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> Just lean into it, Frankenstein beast, and see, and see if they can get that approved. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There, there are some pretty good oil field names out there. I don't know where Claire comes from, but uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no. I think it's a, it's a valid point, uh, Ed. And I, I don't know. Look, they're teaming up on this electrification project. Presumably, they're going to want to move together as one on that. And then once there's more clarity on that, maybe that will open further doors in terms of, uh, you know. FID. I, di- I did see somebody the other day saying that Rosebank, Equinor hasn't committed to electrification on uh, Rosebank. I- I- I'm not sure about that because they've, they've talked very openly about it and they've spent, um, I think they spent $80 million modifying that old FPSO so that it can take electrification. I'm not sure why they'd do that if they didn't intend on actually uh, using it, but you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, no, we'll we'll follow that. Um, but that's where things stand for Claire just now, and we'll we'll leave Claire there. And next up, it's Ed with some big money projections for floating LNG. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice; it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, Ed, some big projections for FLNG and, uh, well, Africa's right at the heart of it. Indeed. So, yeah, I mean, amid uh, Europe's uh, gas crisis, as we uh, try and find a way to to, to, to live beyond uh, Russia's gas supplies, Africa, it, it feels, is, is kind of really sort of front and centre in terms of new opportunities and, and, and floating LNG is, is kind of play, play a key role in that. So there was a there was a there was a new uh, note out this week from uh, from 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 Westwood saying um, that uh, Africa was going to add about ten million tons per year of new floating liquefaction over the next uh, sort of five four or five years or so, uh, and 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 that's really kind of leading the world. And I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons why sort of floating LNG works in Africa particularly. I mean I think there's there's this sort of a clear offshore resource that has been maybe not 
quite so developed as it could have been um and and but largely i think there's there's a, there's a real argument around sort of avoiding some of those onshore problems i mean i think you know we talked quite recently about uh, about mozambique and, and and exxon's plans to kind of go back and you know sort of maybe sort of start moving forwards with its revuma basin plan sort of i think it's 18 million tons of uh, lng so that's sort of you know that's essentially what uh, what west would have said the world will add in terms of floating LNG over the next kind of uh, four years. So, I mean, clearly onshore, you know, you get much bigger sort of economies of scale, but offshore you avoid those those those, those problems of, of, of trying to navigate host communities. In Mozambique, you know, there's that sort of insurgency. Um, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a real case to be made for uh, for sort of floating LNG, even while the, the, the onshore options are, are, are more evident. And I, I suppose on that on that sort of onshore side, it's been quite interesting that uh, that Marathon came out uh, this week and and has talked really much more favourably about its plans to uh, increase production in in Equatorial Guinea, where there's been an, an, an LNG plant there for I think nearly twenty years, but they've been selling gas uh, under this uh, sort of a fixed term uh, contract to Shell, initially BG but now Shell, that was uh, priced to Henry Hub. Um, obviously, they, they, that was a plan uh, formulated before the US became the largest LNG exporter in the world and uh, the shale revolution and, and, and obviously prices have created. So Equatorial Guinea's really seen no upside from, uh, from, from its LNG production and a, and a, and a sort of a move to uh, spot maybe some degree of sort of uh, new contracts is clearly going to be extremely uh, remunerative for Equatorial Guinea and uh, and for Marathon which is which is which is sort of backing that play and there's a I suppose there's I think the, the sort of the Equatorial Guinea plan is interesting because there's a sort of new discussions around you know marginal fields around around cross-border developments with uh, with with Cameroon Chevron's got a got a field that uh, that, that overlaps that 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 maritime border and so I think there is there is this sort of uh, growing drive to cash in on uh, on on LNG in Africa, and a lot of companies looking at ways to do it uh, in, in in maybe in, in innovative ways. Floating being one of those those ways, uh, sending more finding more gas and sending it through existing facilities, debottlenecking, trying to do more with with existing infrastructure. I think all these things feel very positive. I think the challenging point will be when someone decides to move ahead with with a new onshore LNG plant. I think that feels to me like a sort of a real commitment to. A sort of a recognition that there's a sort of a wider a gas crisis. I, I feel like floating LNG is like a really good start, and sending gas through existing uh, facilities makes a lot of sense, but not yet quite moved into that sort of major sort of billions of dollars, uh, you know, tens of uh, millions of tons per year of, uh, of LNG. So still, still keeping our fingers crossed for, uh, for for some new big onshore LNG projects. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Certainly, I mean, you've you've referenced there the also the, the European supply crisis, and I know I know it's at the end of the article. There there is a a little bit on, I guess, FLNG being stuttering at this point rather than fully blooming. Maybe for those that aren't familiar, you know, we've we've had certainly high profile 
issues with this technology, particularly around Shell's uh, Prelude project? Uh, do we do we think we're going to get past that kind of concern in in the near term, especially as you say, with uh, everyone kind of rapidly looking for for answers to the the Russian gas question? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think I think Prelude, as you say, is a, is, a, is a really interesting test case, and I think it's it's a really uh, a, a kind of a driving reason why FLNG maybe didn't hasn't moved quite as fast as it could have done. Um, so, so Prelude is is it's deep water. It's complicated. It's offshore Australia. So, that, I mean, I don't want to don't want to point fingers, but there are sort of you know union problems. There are labour problems. Um, there have been a number of engineering challenges. Uh, there have been electricity failures. So, I think there's there, there's a lot to be learned, and I, and I think that that really shows some of the problems around why FLNG can be a challenge. I think you know with an onshore plant, you've got that sort of you know room for. I suppose uh, some degree of redundancy, I suppose, and 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 obviously also operations are easier. You can get people to an onshore site easier. You can you can you know bring in people. It's 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 less of a concern to carry out that that maintenance. Floating uh, in the middle of the ocean in say two thousand meters of water, you know there are there are a lot more challenges in terms of how you how you, how you move those sorts of projects forwards. And, and and how you how you, how you tackle those problems? So I think uh, I think Annie's pro- Annie's uh, Coral Sul uh, FLNG off 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 Mozambique is is very deep water. I think that's about two thousand meters. So I think that's that's a really interesting test case of 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 the sort of the, the more complicated end of the, of the of the situation. I think what we've seen though in in in, in Africa has been a, a sort of a shallower water FLNG. So. BP's big project uh, in Mauritania, Senegal, the the, the Tortue LNG. The, the, essentially, the, the 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 gas field that's going to be producing from is is further offshore, and there are sort of pipelines coming closer to the shore, and they've built a breakwater to essentially protect the that FLNG vessel from uh, from inclement weather. And I think that that you know that's maybe one way to do it. And I think. You know the the successes that we've seen in Malaysia are, are largely sort of shallower water. There's an FLNG unit off Cameroon that's been producing for some time, in again in shallow water. So I think it's this idea of maybe taking what can be seen as a sort of a complicated technology FLNG and and maybe doing it in a simpler way. And I think I think maybe that's where we're seeing some 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 quite interesting progress. I mean, again, the the Italians offshore Congo have got this project. Uh, it's it's using a, a, a an FLNG vessel that was sort of been around the world a bit, but it should be producing offshore Congo by the end of the year. They're hoping, and again, that's a relatively small project. I think it's about 0.7 million tons per year or something shallow water. But it 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 starts allowing sort of monetization of gas, which obviously it's good for the company. It's good for the local country to get sort of new revenues flowing from resources that would, you know, frankly, otherwise have been wasted. I mean, obviously, flaring is 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 a is a massive problem uh, uh, across Africa, and and obviously also good for uh, Europe's supp- supply problems. So it does feel like a like a way to get things moving quickly. At relatively low cost, so it does it does seem like a way forwards. Uh, but obviously, there are there are there are challenges around scaling that up. I mean, where you can grow an LNG plant onshore, whack another train on the on 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 the outside, maybe put in put in another jetty. It's much harder on a on on a vessel, uh, you know, where there is a limited scope. 
Mm, okay. All right. No, th- thanks, Ed. And uh, yeah, we'll keep a, an eye and see how that market moves. Um, but with that, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So again, thank you to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.